Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we're talking to Danny Longman for something he did recently, which was swim uh, all the public uh, lakes in the Lake District in the UK, uh, swimming the length of them, 13 public accessible, publicly accessible lakes. Uh, that is the fastest known time, by the way. He did it faster than anybody, 41 hours, seven minutes, and it's like 45 miles of swimming or something. It is insane what he was able to do. Uh, but he, that's not the only thing he's he's done. Uh, he, he, he's done a polar row uh, through the Arctic, uh, going all over the place doing some incredible scientific stuff. And I didn't mention, he's also extremely academically minded, getting a PhD from Cambridge University. Um, but he's also uh, academic, but also a very avid adventurer. So so he, get this, after he finished his PhD at Cambridge, he spent six months biking from Mexico City uh, to Ushuaia, Argentina. So literally two-thirds of the Pan American Highway. Um, he needs to finish that other part from Mexico City to uh, Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to go to the top of that. Um, but anyway, he, he does so many cool things. He has a couple Guinness World Records um, for exploration, having rode across the ocean. has a couple ultra-endurance swimming records as well. So it was a pleasure talking to Danny. Very cool stories coming at us, I believe, from this, the Alps. A very great example of balancing career and adventure. So that's something I'm always trying to balance, but Danny's killing it. So let's go ahead and jump in. Hey, folks, welcome to the podcast. You heard a little bit about Danny in the intro, but I wanted to welcome him to the show. Danny Longman, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great to be on the show. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Where are you coming from today? Where's home for you? Yeah, so I'm actually coming to you today from a converted barn just across the French border from Geneva. So we're just on the flanks of the Jura Mountains and on a clear day you can see across the valley to Lake Geneva and the Alps with Mont Blanc front and centre, which is absolutely gorgeous. So I try and spend uh, some time out here when I can because my partner's doing a PhD at the physics labs at CERN, but spend most of my time in the UK in the Midlands at Loughborough University. What is the name of your university that you teach? Yeah, so that's a really good question, actually. So I was going to try to pronounce it, but I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be wrong, so I'm just going to let you do it. Yeah, so it's pronounced uh, Loughborough University, and it's actually you know, a decent school in the UK. It's um, well-drank number one for sports-related subjects, which is, which is super. Um, but it has a real issue reaching out to other countries, I think because of the ridiculous spelling and pronunciation. As you, I think you've seen, it's got two different O-U-G-H uh, parts of the word and they're both pronounced differently which is a nightmare for anyone who's not from the area so um yeah doing my bit for outreach here by giving them a plug <laughs> yeah, it, it could use a marketing uh revamp uh with, with, with the name <laughs> for sure so so loughborough uh or right. loughborough it, yeah definitely not what i would have said i would have said i would have said lowborough or labrough um, <laughs> but it's it's cl somewhat close to nottingham and I was just listening That's to a right. podcast yesterday yeah. about the uh, the great Nottingham cheese riots. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, you're going to have to educate me here. <laughs> I have no idea. There was apparently, I, I think this was in the 18th century, there was a shortage of, I mean, there was just almost famine across that area. And the only thing that was really accessible was, was making cheese from milk. Um, but folks from London would come and buy that cheese and take it to London. And so there was this great revolt to keep the cheese local. Uh, and so giant wheels of cheese were rolling around the streets. There were riots. There was, uh, f you know, firing into the crowds. It was, it was chaos for weeks. And so, I don't know. I listened to like a, a 30 minute podcast about it yesterday. And so when I looked at where your university was, I was like, wow, it's, it's right there. I don't, I don't know. It's, it sounded like a very, uh, not a very well-known thing that was going on. Oh, thank you for the lesson. Nonetheless, I did not yeah, that. check it out. The cheese riots. I think they recently celebrated some anniversary of it, maybe 250 years, something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, um, very interesting. So I did not expect you to say you're coming from just outside Geneva. So uh, what are you doing out there? Are you skiing, just enjoying the mountains, the weather? Yeah. So just visiting my partner, really. She's got a really nice uh, converted barn that she's renting here. Um, as I mentioned, she's doing a PhD kind of in this area in, uh, in particle physics. So whenever kind of my teaching and my research allows, it's a great place to come and work remotely from. So yeah, just at the moment working like normal, I guess um, COVID's kind of set us up for that now uh it's becoming a bit more of the norm to work off campus which is nice 
Um, but otherwise, yeah, when we kind of bit of cross country skiing is is nice. I learned learned last winter, uh, so that's my new was my new obsession for a while. Oh, that's awesome! How do you find yeah. uh, academia? Is it compatible with the adventurous lifestyle, or do you find yourself constantly fighting against the two lives that you live? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Actually, I think um, I think for me personally, they are amazingly compatible. My um, my research program and my sports are really interlinked. Um, so the research I do is is within human evolution, and we use sport as a model to study mechanisms of adaptation, uh, specifically ultra endurance sports as a model. So quite often I find that my own experiences with ultra endurance sport kind of informs my research and throws up questions, but then also the knowledge that I gain from the academic side of things really helps me to push myself and understand what's happening with my own body when I'm doing ultra endurance events. So I think for me, the two actually complement each other really well. So I'm quite lucky there. Yeah, there you you probably see the adventure physically see it in a different light as well with with mm. what you research and what you know. I have a background in biology as well. And so when I'm out with my friends who are maybe not thinking about that stuff, constantly pointing things out that maybe you wouldn't catch otherwise. So that's interesting. What about timing? Because some of these things you do are just, well, they're FKTs now, a lot of them. So you can do it in a shorter window, but some of your other experiences are are very long or very all encompassing, I would feel. Yeah, I mean, one of the first big adventures I went on was a six-month unsupported cycle from Mexico City uh, down to the bottom of Argentina to Ushuaia. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously not compatible at all with having a job. So I was really lucky there that that was um, a bit of a present to myself, if you like, for finishing my PhD. So that was in between my PhD and then taking my first academic position. So that was a great opportunity for that. And I think that with academia and possibly with um, some other jobs too, if, if you're creative, you know, if you kind of engineer um, gaps when you can be it through sabbatical or be it between positions, you can make this kind of thing happen. But it's, yeah, otherwise, if you're getting bogged down in your week to week, it's um, shorter adventures are the way to go. So I know we're not going like a, a through line. I want to go back to your first row across the Atlantic. But since you brought it up, I do want to ask the six-month cycling from Mexico City to Ushuaia, after finishing your PhD, that that that, that feels like... I, I hear from a lot of adventurers after they do a long, like, six-month adventure that they're intellectually malnourished, maybe. They feel like they, they, they desire going back to school or desire some sort of course to take or something to just concretely um, help them get back on track intellectually. Did you find that as a hard transition going from so focused on, on academia to literally cycling for six months? What were you doing to kind of prepare yourself for the next phase of life, coming back to academia and starting to teach? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question actually, because, um, I sometimes have this in a battle, uh, in my mind, which is on the one hand, you know, I want to be this, kick-ass academic, you know, um, publishing papers, getting grants, making advances in the field. But on the other hand, the idea of just being a cycle bum and touring the world indefinitely is <laughs> yes. really appealing. And like the same <laughs> shirt for three weeks. Uh, yeah, yeah, that absolutely. sounds refreshing in I, a lot of ways. Yeah, wear it until it falls off. And then, Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think ultimately I wouldn't be happy with either one of those in on its own so i find that yep yeah, um the cycling the the ultra endurance stuff that gives me a break that gives my mind chance to recharge and i come back pumped and enthusiastic to work again whereas at the same time when i've been working for a good number of months or years i'm very ready to go on an adventure so i think um coming back the main difficulty was um obviously coming back from south america and uh, patagonia was just getting used to the number of people again i remember being in a, uh, a traffic jam <laughs> about two or three days after getting back. And it was the middle of winter in Liverpool, in the north of England. So it was dark at about 4 p.m. And I was in this traffic jam and there were red lights, red brake lights as far as I could see. And just for a moment, I had this overwhelming feel of, feeling of claustrophobia. You know, just all these people, all this machinery, all this um, kind of mechanical noise uh, around me. And that took a bit of adjusting to but otherwise, to be honest, I was really enthused to to get back into things and to get working. And I had it when you, as you know, from your own cycle adventures, when you're cycling, your mind wanders. And when you've been going for a while, you, you start coming up with ideas, you have things you want to do. You get really enthusiastic about what you're going to do when you get back. And um, I think at that point I was ready. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that is so interesting. I, 
Did you, six months is a long time. Obviously, you know, if you're doing these trips, you're busy in the sense of every inch you travel, every face you meet is brand new. So your mind is busy in that sense and the time slows down. But I'm in academia, I keep bringing that up, but, you know, working in a university, I'm sure there's this pressure to perform in a lot of ways and to stay ahead and to not fall behind. Did you feel a sense of what am I doing out here, out in these mountains or out in this middle of nowhere I could be advancing my career. Did you have that pressure? Yeah, to be honest, no, I didn't feel that. I think um, I think everything you do is a trade-off, isn't it? You know, if mm-hmm. you're doing one thing or devoting time and effort to one thing, you're not putting that effort into something else. And I think kind of my background and my upbringing, which has been very rounded, you know, with sport, with social side of things, with with work as well, has kind of taught me that if you do any one thing to excess, it's going to be to the detriment of you as a wider kind of person in terms of your wider well-being and happiness. So I think that, yeah, I was definitely aware that, you know, I could be, I could have started my my next academic position six months earlier. I could have, you know, by then have applied for a grant, have published a paper or two, but actually long-term, it's much better for me to take this time out. And um, I was really lucky working with the professor I was down at Cambridge at the time, Jay. He was completely understanding of the fact that he was, he's like, you know, hey, Danny, Danny needs to do this. He'll, he'll go away for six months, he'll come back and then he'll be fully switched on, fully engaged, and he'll be great to work with. But if I didn't do it, then, you know, after a year or two, uh, <laughs> maybe my concentration levels might fall and I'd get restless. So I think it's, um, I'm lucky enough to see the kind of, understand how it helps me from a bigger, a wider perspective. Mm. So interesting. And, and let me ask you this, do you feel it gave you any sort of, you'd feel like this lifestyle gives you any sort of unique advantage as a professor? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think, um, I think in terms of your general approach to work, because as you mentioned, you know, academia can be, there can be quite a bit of pressure associated with it. Um, and I think once you've dealt with the situations that you have to solve on an adventure, uh, that gives you confidence when you come back, right? You know, the day-to-day things, having to deal with someone at work or having to deal with a deadline or having to stay up late to complete a piece of work, for example, that kind of thing, you, you have the confidence that you can handle it because of what you've done in the field. And I think, um, as I mentioned before, for my own research for the specific program, what I learned from my adventures directly feeds in and gives me research questions that then directs my research when I get back. So I think for me, the two, the, the two really do help each other. So interesting. Do, do you feel like an anomaly as well? Or is this a more common, uh, try a, a common balance between st- studying what you study and going and having adventures? Do you see other professors or other folks in academia do, doing this? Because well, we've, we've talked to plenty on this show, but I don't know if yeah. they know each other, if that makes sense. <laughs> and that's a really good question. To be honest, when I was, um, so I did my undergrad, uh, master's, PhD and postdoc down at Cambridge University in England, which is um, quite an academically rigorous place to be. And oh, sure. um, although there's, you know, there's fantastic sports teams there, you get really top high level athletes. The, the athletes really are in the minority there. You know, people go there to study and to work. Um, so there I definitely felt like I was, um, a bit of an oddball <laughs> for going away and doing this kind of things. But since moving to Loughborough, which really does have this strong reputation for sports, you know, that lots of the staff there used to be athletes or they're still competing. Um, there was a colleague recently was competing at the world squash championships, someone else who's kind of run a four minute mile. There's athletes all over the place on the staff. So I feel like it's much more understood there, like perhaps in Cambridge to a degree, not with the people I worked with immediately, but <laughs> the wider community is kind of a bit more, it's tolerated. Whereas at Loughborough, they kind of, uh, they celebrate that kind of thing a bit more. So yeah, definitely feels a bit more, a bit more at home there. So interesting. I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy having buckets in my life that don't overlap at all. And you can kind of completely exit one into another. And you, when you're talking to people who are within those buckets, whether that's personal or or through work or through uh, adventure, I don't know. It's just sometimes fun to have, to know in the back of your mind how different other parts of your life are. <laughs> I don't know if I if that came across right, but you, you, you might know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it kind of gives you a sense of escapism, doesn't it? When you <laughs> that's probably know what that, it is. <laughs> you know, I've got this whole part of my life that you don't even know about. <laughs> yeah, look at, yeah, and, it, and it's not—it's nice. not in a uh, arrogant way. It's just fun to say, "Yeah, I can unplug from this when I need to." Um, that's so interesting. Well, tell us how you got into this because you grew up 
from what I understand, doing a, a little more traditional sports. You were a runner, a footballer. Uh, you did canoe that you mentioned in, in the uh, the notes. Where did that transition into adventure? And also, did you grow up with this mindset or was it just traditional sports growing up? Yeah, so growing up, it was very much traditional sports. You know, I grew up in um, in North Liverpool, which is football, soccer, oh, yeah. uh, mad. Um, so I played football initially and then got into running. I was a sprinter, you know, one and 200 meters. So the, the polar opposite of ultra endurance stuff. I used to have the mindset that if, um, if an event gave you time to think, it was too far. Um, so you should be doing something shorter. So 100, <laughs> 200 was perfect. And then, yeah, university got into canoeing with the GB squad and discovered rowing, uh, so river rowing, which was great. I really enjoyed doing that at university. Um, but it was, yeah, it was the first kind of adventure event that I did was um, an Atlantic row. And I was working as I was trying to save up money to do my master's degree. So I was working in London city centre doing this. Oh, gosh, it was for me. Uh, I understand a load of people love this kind of thing. But for me, it was just awful. It was um, working for a management consultancy. So kind of like business corporate type uh, summer job. And it was destroying my soul <laughs> with every day. And oh, um, my, yeah, really grim. And uh, anyway, my dad, um, I must have shot him a message to tell him that I was definitely not going to be pursuing a career in this. And um, I think he sensed that, you know, I needed a... Uh, something to kind of work towards. So he sent me a, a newspaper clipping actually in the post and um, it was of an Atlantic row. And I was like, I didn't even know, you know, can you row across oceans? I'd never even heard of that concept before. I was 21 at the time and super naive. And um, so I started Googling it and um, came across a team that was recruiting for an Atlantic row in about four months time. So I thought, hey, let's, let's shoot an email. Um, so sent the captain an email, was invited to a trial up in the wilds of Scotland run by these former special services uh, guys up there and uh, somehow landed a place on this team. And that was, yeah, it was just this purely serendipitous uh, chat with my dad, which led to him seeing a clipping in a newspaper and sending it to me that kind of led to all of this. So, um, yeah, went off and trained for this row, was involved with it. And that then kind of really broadened the horizons of well, what is possible. You know, sport doesn't have to be done in a stadium, on a pitch, on a track. Like the whole world is is your stadium. So that really then opened up um, my mind to what was possible, yeah. So it sounds like you had the support of at least your dad from the beginning. That's that that's not always common with adventurers starting out, especially that young. What was that experience like, the Atlantic Ocean row? I mean, in the sense of coming of age. I mean, I'm sure you just were a completely different person on the other side. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, that was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 fastest known times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, gnarly nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, Go to go 
gnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y.com, and use the code gnarlyadventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here. I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, They helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, absolutely. So my um yeah, my mom and dad have always been incredibly supportive of everything, which is even I'm, that. I'm very yeah, very exactly, yes. Yeah, so I'm wow. very aware of how lucky I am uh to have that. Um but with regards to that particular row, it was um <laughs> looking back, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um I was 22 by the time we started the row and I joined the team late. It was about 3 months before before leaving. So I, yeah, I, I knew the basics of rowing. I'd rowed in a river crew. Um, I could row on the machine. That was all fine, but I was completely unprepared for what it was like out at sea. Um, we would, as I mean, you've had lots of guests on the show doing, talking about ocean row. So we had the standard two hour shift pattern, row for two hours, rest for two hours, etc. And, um, the thing that I wasn't prepared for was the fact that it's not really a rowing expedition. Um, I mean, yeah, you're spending half of your time rowing, but what enables you to be successful isn't how well you row, it's how well you look after yourself in between rowing. It's how you deal with the seasickness, it's how you deal with getting enough calories in, it's how well you sleep, it's all of the the personal admin stuff that goes on. And I didn't have a clue about any of that. I didn't take any seasickness medication. I was being sick. I wasn't able to eat for the first four days. Um, And I really struggled actually for the first three or four days of it. But then something really interesting happened after that. After, I think on day four, I managed to sleep for about 10 minutes, um, which was the first I'd slept in like four days. Oh God! And then I was, yeah. Um, and then I managed to eat half a Mars bar and then I slept for an hour and then I ate a meal and my body started recovering. And this was kind of going against everything I'd ever been taught from a sports science perspective. It was all of my coaches had told me you you train, you push yourself, but then you must rest. And it's the rest that makes you stronger and able to be better when you then go to compete. But on this expedition, there was no rest. We had these two-hour periods of downtime where I was barely sleeping or eating. But despite not resting, I was getting stronger and recovering. And by the time I we got back home, I went straight to uh, my professor, Jay, at Cambridge and said, hey, you know, there's this really cool adaptive mechanism that we have uh, that allows us to adapt to stressful environments, whether it's you know, lack energetic stress, whether it's sleep deprivation, lack of nourishment, whatever it is, we have this amazing adaptive mechanism and we need to study it. And um, it was that actually that led to this whole research program that I've been working on for the last 10 years. Um, so from that respect, it was totally transformative. You know, it set up my academic career, I guess, uh, just from my own experiences on that road. So um, I didn't quite realize that at the time, but it was very foundational to pretty much everything I've done since. What did you feel like you, uh, or what have you discovered since then about that um, that capability of our bodies? Is there any unique or, or particularly interesting applications for that adaptation you noticed? Yeah. So, um, so I my research is all within within human evolution, and um, as a species, we have this uh, evolutionary trajectory characterized by repeated cycles of colonization and dispersal you know we've colonized and dispersed colonized and dispersed and that's how we uh colonized the whole world essentially once we left um sub-saharan africa and whenever you colonize a new area um kind of back in the day i'm not talking about colonial expansion but more the initial human migrations of indigenous populations whenever you you colonize a new area in that way there's huge food insecurity associated with that you know you might go hungry you don't know where the food is yet And because of that, we've developed as a species these incredible adaptive mechanisms to be able to deal with this energetic stress. And uh, that's what we've been been trying to study. So since getting back from that row, uh, my professor was really great and supportive in teaching me all of the evolutionary theory that I would need to kind of build a research program in this area. And we've started to learn uh, which systems get prioritized because it's a little bit like, I guess, if you... um, if you suddenly have a pay cut of about 50%, you can't afford everything. And it's the same as if you if you suddenly have an energetic cut. If you're not getting enough energy, you can't invest energy in everything that you would normally do. 
So you have to prioritize, you have to trade off. And what the research is starting to do now is starting to identify what this hierarchy of functional preservation is. And we're finding things like immune system, really important, cognitive system, perhaps even more important. Uh, whereas factors like reproductive function, that, that goes pretty quickly. So that's where that's where this research is heading. Are there any particular applications you think it will or, or, or professions you think that'll help that research? Like what, what, what's in your mind? What do you see farther down the road? I'm just interested. This is, this is pretty cool. Yeah. No, that's a really good question because quite often you, know, you get, you just get so focused on the, the basic research, you know, trying to work out what's happening. Whereas obviously research is only valuable ultimately in terms of, you know, helping people in some way. And, um, a really good collaborator of mine is, um, he's working in an area called evolutionary public health. Um, and the idea is that, that public health and medical initiatives would be uh, would benefit from taking an evolutionary perspective. And what we're hoping to do is use this approach to, I mean, you see around the world, you know, people being displaced by war, by famine, mass migrations. I think last year, over a billion people last, world, uh, last year migrated around the world. And whenever you migrate, you know, especially if it's due to a war, as we're at the time of recording here, there's the war in uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's people migrating, there's people being forced out of their homes and there's huge food insecurity associated with that. So if we can start to understand how the body responds to that, then hopefully that can inform the medical interventions that, that might ultimately help these people. Wow. So, so interesting. That is that is very fascinating. So so 22 years old, you finish this Atlantic row, you, you, you come back energized. By the way, how long did it take you to readjust to, quote, normal life after two hours on, two hours off? I don't think I've ever asked an ocean rower that. <laughs> so I, I was just about to jump in there, actually, because uh, unfortunately, we didn't complete that row. Uh, we got about halfway across and um, got hit by something in the water that the captain swears was a killer whale <laughs> that, uh, that sunk the boat uh, and we ended up having to be rescued. So that's, um, that was, that was a, a bit of a, an experience. But by the time we got back, uh, we'd probably been at sea for about three to four weeks. Uh, so I think my adjustment was a lot quicker because of that. You know, normally an Atlantic row might take 40 or even 50 plus days. So I think the fact that we were only actually out for three weeks in the end um, made the adjustment period pretty quick. So I'd say within a couple of days, I was I was grand again. Yeah, still that, that's still a heck of an adventure too. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> yeah. the the incomplete adventures become some of the most interesting. We had a guest last year; uh, their boat was hit by this a swordfish. The bill, the, the, that literal nose of the fish, went through the hull of the boat and almost sank it. <laughs> I had never Gosh. heard of any, they had to cut it off. Like it broke off the fish, but it's this shaft that's a foot long that's as big around as your wrist going straight through the boat and almost oh, hit one of them while they were sleeping, went through their legs and uh, water comes pouring in. They had to cut it off and then seal it. Uh, and it stayed there for the remainder of the trip. <laughs> Pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe I don't know if you, it, you that might have happened. I don't know what, what what was going on there. I don't know the chances, but anyway, um, wow, that is insane that the boat sank. So were you guys okay? Was it a pretty big rescue mission, or was it a uh, fairly calm? Yeah, um, we were okay. Um, there were a few a few moments here. One of the captain at one point fell overboard and was was grabbed before um, the waves took him away, and then. Thankfully, within, I think, three days later, a Ukrainian uh, cargo ship was passing by and was able to pick us up by throwing a wee rope over the side of the boat. Um, so you have a particular aff uh, affinity for Ukraine. Absolutely. No, they've uh, we've got good good relationships historically, <laughs> adventure-wise, with Ukraine, absolutely. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, the rescue was, was pretty sketchy, but they, um, they did a great job. They got us all off the boats, and uh, we hitched a ride with them back to Europe. So that was um, that was interesting uh, seeing how uh, how they uh, pick people up at sea. Uh, definitely not recommended, but um, yeah, it did, did the job, and we all we all got home safe and sound. Wow! So after that experience, you go back to school and you finish your PhD. You do the Mexico uh, to Ushuaia six month cycling trip. Go back to school, and since then, tell us about some of the adventures you've been doing. Particularly, I want to hear about the polar row. Was that chronologically what happened next? Um, yeah, so that's that's absolutely right. Yes, yeah, so this was back in 2017. Um, 
And this one really captured my imagination, you know, having the, the chance to row that far north in the Arctic Circle. I thought, that this is really cool. I've got to, I've got to do this. So um, there was, yeah, I hooked up with the, with the captain and shot a message to the team via, I think they were advertising on Explorers Connect. Um, and I joined a team which was, the plan was essentially to row from Svalbard, uh, which is a Norwegian island way up above the Arctic Circle. I think it was a three-hour flight due north from Oslo, uh, just to give a sense of how far north this place is and um the idea was to row from there to iceland uh to be the first to cross the the greenland sea or the arctic ocean and um yeah it was such a beautiful place um heading up to svalbard before before the expedition started we had a week or so there working on the boat and it's it was like somewhere i'd never seen before there's um kind of permanent frost uh, just below the surface there, which really <laughs> influences what they can build and what they can't. Just little things like um, there's no sewage, for example. So every cabin has a incinerator toilet. So you put a little bag in and it sets fire when you flush it uh, to burn things away because they can't have you know anything going underground because of the ice. Um, and the, the 24 hour daylight was, was phenomenally beautiful as well. So that was, that was a really beautiful row. That was, um, we started from Svalbard and we had a last minute change of plans. We thought, well, when are we ever going to have a chance to be this far north again? So instead of heading straight south for Iceland, we thought, well, let's try and go as far north as possible. Uh, let's row, far, row north until the ice stops us, essentially until we reach the, the permanent ice cap. Um, so we, we headed up north first, did that, then turned south into the open seas. And um, that was, yeah, it was definitely a character building trip. Um, there were a lot of a lot of difficulties, but in retrospect, it was it was a really great thing to have done. Having rowed, you know, halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, tell us about some of the major differences of, of literally rowing to the the ice cap, because obviously the temperature. But how much more difficult did that make it? Is it you know just throw a couple layers on, or was it exponential? Yeah, you know, I can't understate how much of a difference the temperature makes. It was <laughs> it was huge. Um, I didn't realize just how much uh, how nice the Atlantic was that you didn't have to worry about temperature. You know, you you rode topless, you put a t shirt on at nighttime. You don't even think about being cold. Um, whereas the Arctic, oh my word! So we, I was lucky enough to be um, have a sponsorship deal with Heli Hansen, who are this. Uh, fantastic Norwegian clothing manufacturer for extreme sports. They oh, do yeah. mountains, they do sailing, all this kind of thing. So they kitted us out with this amazing um, kind of outerwear gear that was like waterproof necks, waterproof wrists, you know, to really keep the water out. Um, but gosh, yeah. So it was the height of summer. The air temperature was about zero to two degrees most days. And the water Celsius and the water was about four degrees Celsius. Um, so probably like mid mid thirties, maybe Fahrenheit. Um, and yeah, you'd be rowing along and the waves would be crashing over you. So just absolutely freezing cold. But the main thing that was hard about it was that because while you're while you're rowing, you and you get a bit cold, you just row harder, right? A bit like when you're cycle touring and and it's cold, you can you can cycle harder into a degree that will warm you up and keep you going. But the hard thing about this was the downtime. We we rode in 90-minute shifts uh, instead of two hours, so it was well, 90 why minutes was, Why the change? I, that was one of my questions. Yeah, good question. Um, so <laughs> basically, because our captain wanted to, <laughs> it was never up for debate or discussion. Uh, no explanation was provided. <laughs> for, for, a, for a scientist like yourself, I'm sure that was uh, hard, oh, to, yeah, that hard was, to accept. That, that was not frustrating in the slightest, <laughs> not knowing the reasons why. <laughs> Um, and it made it a lot harder to be honest with 90 minutes because the hardest thing is getting up is waking up and heading out into the cold again. And it meant that we had to do that eight times a day instead of six times a day, um, which after a while is, uh, it kind of wears you down. But yeah, the hard thing was this, um, this downtime because we were in the, you, you climb into this tiny cabin at the end of the boat and because it's so cold, the condensation from your breath immediately, um, turns to liquid on the, on the outside of, on the kind of the inside wall of the boat. So it would be dripping on your face uh, while you're trying to sleep um, and dripping onto the sleeping bag as well. So everything was soaking wet. So the sleeping bags were wringing wet. The underclothes, you know, the wool that you'd be wearing underneath the outer layer, that was all soaking wet too. So for the duration of the trip, um, you were never warm or dry at all. And that was, that was what really made it tough. It was the inability to properly recover and warm up in between shifts. 
So I say, yeah, if anyone's fancying a cold weather thing, I highly recommend uh, the Arctic rowing. It's a lot of fun. You see things that you wouldn't see elsewhere, but um, prepare yourself for the cold. Oh my gosh. That is, that's my worst nightmare to be cold and wet that for that long. But what you get to see. So, so, so tell us about that. You know, the Atlantic, I assume you didn't see anything. We've talked to plenty of people who rowing, sailing uh, across the oceans. You, you see, I mean, animals, you, you do see some dolphins or whatnot. I, I've heard them mentioned, but not anything in the water, particularly besides boats. That's different near the Arctic. You obviously have it icebergs, is. but did you notice other things? We did, yeah. So, um, in, so when you leave uh, Longyearbyen, which is the the capital, if you like, of Svalbard, you, you head out the fjord and then turn right to go north. And for the first kind of day or so, you're you're weaving between islands, and you can see you can see the land, you can see the glaciers, uh, which is absolutely stunning. Um, and at the same time, you're keeping an eye out for polar bears because they um, they can swim faster than we can row. Uh, so you, we had to, by law, we had to carry a rifle on board um, in case we were attacked by a polar bear. And thankfully, we didn't see one because obviously it would be horrendous to to have to use the rifle. But um, that was something that we were definitely aware of. But other than that, the the thing that was really striking to me was was the ice cap itself. Um, is as we started to approach 80 degrees north. First of all, we had these small, almost like pebbles, uh, pebble-sized chunks of ice kind of passing by the boat. And then they slowly became bigger. They became football-sized. Then they became kind of sofa-sized, like a small car, then like buildings. And ultimately, when we were when we reached the ice cap, uh, we were kind of weaving in between the ice, trying to get as far north as we could, uh, basically just playing, um, kind of dodging all of these icebergs. But it was so beautiful. They had this... Um, kind of light bluish kind of hint to them and there was such a calmness as well the water was perfectly still like um like a, like a pond or a small lake and the sense of silence the only thing you could hear was the creaking of the ice and the sound of the paddles going in and out of the water and it really felt quite quite magical actually to be there thinking that you know no one's ever quite possibly no one's been on this this part of the planet before uh being out in the middle of the sea next to all of the ice but also the fact that it's such a dynamic environment. You know, the icebergs were constantly moving that it will never be the same again. So it's what you're seeing is truly unique. So I think that was that definitely added a dimension to the the Arctic rowing that the Atlantic didn't have. I, something I've always been struck by when seeing images of that area is the calmness of the water. And it sounds like that was true. Right? And I don't know if that's because most of the pictures are taken in bays or, or in somewhere a little more confined, but... You're mentioning that again, so it's it sounds like that's mm -hmm. an element that's pretty consistent. Absolutely, yeah. There was um, obviously the the weather would change, but the day, uh, the two days or so that we were by the ice, we there was no not a breath of wind, um, and I guess even if there was, the the icebergs would probably shelter the water to a degree, um, and it looked perfectly flat, like you could get a single sculling rowing boat out there, and it would be perfect. So that was that was incredible, actually. It was. The fact that the, um, the ice was constantly moving, we, we realized actually after probably about 12 hours of dodging it that this could potentially be a problem because um, when we, t we obviously then you have to turn around and get out, right? So, um, so when we, we kind of, we got, to, we felt as though we'd gone as far as we possibly could, you know, that the icebergs were kind of building size. We couldn't see our way through. We're like, right, okay, let's, let's turn around and go to Iceland. Um, and we turned around and like, there wasn't a way out. <laughs> so, um, we spent probably the best part of two days, like trying, you know, standing up on top of the cabin, you know, trying to see, okay, you know, if we, if we go left here, go right here, we can, we can make a few hundred meters. And sometimes that would pan out. Sometimes you'd reach a dead end and you'd have to come back. Um, so through a lot of trial and error, we managed to, um, to, to get out. <laughs> um, I think that was, uh, we almost got ourselves into some trouble there, but even when we, um, we left the ice behind, that was when we then started to see the whales, um, which was stunning. You know, these huge humpback whales, um, you'd, you'd, first of all, you'd, you'd hear a puff uh, off to one side as it you know, spits all the air out through its blowhole. And then you look over and you'd see a small, a small pod of them. And then I think at one point there were about three or four pods of whales that we could see all around the boat at different points. So that was, that was pretty special too. Wow. That's so fantastic. Oh, so mm. you you are pedaling that pa paddling that far north. What was it like to see the ice cap? Was it defined or was it like you said constantly getting closer to closer to larger and larger ice cap or icebergs until 
you, it's impassable, but could you, could you see the cap or see the edge? Like, what was that like? Yeah. So as we were approaching it, obviously when you're, when you're rowing, you're going backwards. Um, so you could only really see what had passed <laughs> That's right. by you. Forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was where we could see, you know, the ice getting bigger and bigger as it passed you. But then on the way out, I got a better look because <laughs> obviously I was looking back at it then. Um, and yeah, it kind of looks a little bit like, um, like some buildings on the horizon. Obviously, you know, it's the middle of the sea, so they can't be buildings, but it kind of has that kind of shape to it. Um, like you're approaching a small town, maybe <laughs> from the countryside. So interesting. So t- tell us about the the rest of the route. You, you, the, the goal was to get to the ice cap, correct? And, and then what? Yes. Yeah. So we, we got to the ice cap, which was super. Um, I think we we became the, the furthest north any rowing crew had got to at that point. So that was, that was nice. And then, um, turned around with the destination of Iceland, which was about a thousand kilometers or at, at about, um, six, 700 nautical miles away, I think maybe a bit further. And, um, yeah, once we got into the open sea, uh, it was a completely different ball game. Um, the waves got bigger, um, really quite dangerously big at times. You've, um, Nowhere near as big as the Atlantic. You, know, you hear about people on the Atlantic having 10, 12, even 15 meter waves. Um, but the difference in the Arctic was that it's quite a confused sea. And by that, I mean that in the Atlantic, and especially in the trade wind zone, all of the waves are going in the same direction. They're pushing you from Africa towards the Caribbean, uh, which is nice because that's the direction you're going. But in the Arctic, the waves were coming from all different directions. They were constantly changing the work. The wind was swirling. And that made the waves a bit more dangerous in terms of capsize. So it definitely got a lot more engaging. We were a lot more switched on <laughs> and less playful once we left the um, the ice cap behind and got into the open sea. Um, but yeah, it was it was really great. We um, the team worked fantastically well together. Um, we had a few periods of, of sea anchor when it's too dangerous to row. So you just um, you throw your little parachute out into the water and you have to huddle in the in the um, we cabin for a number of hours at a time, but we kept making progress. And ultimately we had to actually end the expedition a bit early um, in an island that I hadn't actually heard of at the time. Uh, we place called Jan Mayen, which is just north of Iceland, uh, which is a Norwegian uh, military and geological base, a volcanic island up there. And uh, we had to end there because we had a complete f- power failure on the boat. The the fuel cell stopped working. The, the solar panels, um, despite the fact it was light 24 hours a day, were doing nothing because it was so cloudy. And in the end, we we had to navigate the last um, 24 hours by handheld compass and manually steer the boat with a rope uh, because we had no power. So at that point, we had to just um, head to the nearest nearest island. So we didn't, in the end, get to Iceland. But um, I think we'd had a we felt as though we'd had a decent adventure, <laughs> even though we didn't quite get to the destination. Wow. So interesting. Well, well, tell me about the, some of the goals of the adventure with, with uh, from your point of view, coming from your, your research background, was there anything you were keeping track of or something you were trying to, trying to figure out while you were out there rowing? Yeah, so I think I probably had like two goals being there. And um, my main goal was just to explore. It was to have fun. It was to, you know, see a part of the world I would never otherwise see and to basically to feel alive uh, you know pushing myself physically in such an amazing part of the world but there was also a second goal which was more research driven was um <laughs> i was actually collecting uh, pee samples from the guys <laughs> on the boat every every two days or so oh that's exciting so I had an awesome yeah i had an awesome little ziploc bag full of all these little pee jars that were clinking away in the in the storm in the cabin um, with the idea that we could analyze that when we get back to work out, um, how much energy we were expending. Um, so how many calories we were burning and whether there was any form of adaptation associated with that, if we were adapting to the conditions on board. So I was doing that with, uh, with about half the team, they were peeing into little, um, pots for me every couple of days, probably about, I'd say about 10% of their pee made it into the, um, into the little pot. The rest of it ended up somewhere on the deck in the, in the high seas. But that was, that was something that was, kind of gave the trip another an extra dimension for me and also at the time allowed me to take a bit more a bit more time off work without taking too much holiday which was which was always good so tell me about your plan to take off work well i, I want to collect some pee samples sounds good yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the great thing that about academia that, yeah that kind of thing flies you just say i'm off to take pee samples they're like yeah yes. have fun <laughs> see you when you get back <laughs> oh my gosh that's hilarious so um, what did you find? Did you, did have you, have you gotten the results of that research? 
Yeah, so unfortunately, we've not quite got the results yet. There were huge delays at the lab. Um, so I'm still <laughs> still waiting to see uh, what the P will tell us, if indeed anything. Um, but what, what we're expecting is um, that there was some degree of uh, metabolic or energetic adaptation uh, whereby the body kind of gets more efficient because we, we were losing an insane amount of weight. Um, so that expedition was 13 days. We were out in the Arctic Sea 4 and I, I lost 13 kilos uh, during that time. So an average of a kilo a day. So the, the energetic stress was, was massive. Uh, so I'm yeah, really looking forward to seeing what, 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 the, uh, what the P will tell us. Do you, f- <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. Um, do, <laughs> do, do you feel that uh, polar rowing or cold weather ocean rowing is, is in your future more? I, I know that it adds unique elements like the icebergs, the calmness, uh, it's probably a frontier that not a lot of people are exploring. So there's that sense, but do you see it in your future anymore? Yeah, no, that, that's, that is a really good point. Cause, um, you know, more and more people are doing, um, Atlantic rowing, for example, now and Pacific rowing and Indian yeah. ocean rowing is going that way as well. I think for me, I just found the Arctic to be really beautiful in so many ways, just the remoteness, uh, remoteness of it and the, the wilderness a bit like, a bit like I felt for the first time down in Patagonia cycling, actually just, um, feeling like you're in a wild place. Um, so I think I definitely do want to do more Arctic adventures, whether it's ocean rowing um, or whether it's something land-based. Uh, I really don't mind. I kind of, I wouldn't necessarily see myself as an ocean rower. It's more just that was that was the means of transport for that trip. Uh, so yeah, it may well be an ocean row up there in the future, but it could equally be something else. Maybe swimming. <laughs> So take yeah, us I through, to, uh, you I know, you, tough enough for that one. <laughs> you, so that you, you found that, um, you found that adventure through the, uh, the explorers, explorers connect. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We've heard about it a little bit on the show, but do you know much about that? And, and, and can you, you obviously got connected through an adventure that way. Do you mind sharing a little bit more? Yeah, of course. Um, so basically it's this really cool website that, um, hooks people up who are into adventures. So I, I was just, Kind of just browsing through the website, uh, just out of I was just bored. I think one afternoon I was like, "Yeah, I'll just have a quick look, see if anything's uh, anything grabs my fancy." And there was there was an advert on the um, you know captain seeking crew to break world records in the Arctic for rowing. And I was like, "Ooh, Arctic rowing! That sounds that sounds cool." <laughs> I'll drop him an email. So I sent an email saying, "Yep, I'm your man. Uh, <laughs> here's my uh, adventure CV," and uh, I kind of went from there. But yeah, Explorers Connect is great. So if you're if, for example, you you know you have an adventure idea and but you need a team, uh, put an advert on there. People will get in touch with you. Similarly, if you want to do something but you would like to join an existing team, uh, it will help you with that too. So I highly recommend checking it out. And I think um, you know the more people who get on there, obviously, the more powerful the tool it'll become. So, yeah, all listeners, get on there, check out Explorers Connect. Explorers Connect, it's so cool. Uh, we, we've heard about it in bits in bits on this show, but not. Uh... I need to connect with them. That'd be a great place to, to start showcasing some of the adventures there. Obviously, a great way to get more guests, too. Jeez. Absolutely. Um, that said, I haven't been on it for four or five years. Right, right. It looks <laughs> so like it not a lot great, of people man. have. <laughs> so, no, well, well tell, me, uh, tell, tell me about your transition from ocean rowing to what you've most recently done. Uh, swims, fastest known time swims. Where did this idea come from? And obviously, you have a background in swimming or no? Uh, no, no, absolutely <laughs> no. not. Um, Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I learned as a kid, um, so I could swim, but yes, <laughs> that was that's, about it. That's the extent. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, this was an interesting one, actually. So I was out in the, the Wadi Rum Desert in uh, Jordan, in the Middle East, uh, sat by a campfire uh, one night, as you do. At, um, I was on field work at an ultramarathon competition. I was taking samples from athletes to you know, do my work to study mechanisms of adaptation. And I was sat next to this English lad, Tom, uh, at the campfire, who was, who was a runner. And he, he turned to me and he said, um, he said, you know what, Dan? He said, I'm not really a runner, you know. And I was like, well, you could have fooled me. You know, you're here running 250 kilometers across the desert. He said, well, no, I'm actually a swimmer. I was like, okay, tell me about your swimming. And uh, he told me that that summer, he, he'd been training for the last, uh, last year or two to try to break a record to swim, to be the first person to set, actually the first person, yeah, to swim the full length of every lake in the English Lake District. Um, and there's 13 of these lakes in this mountainous area of the northwest of England. And his idea was that he wanted to swim every lake, uh, cycling from lake to lake, 
uh, as quickly as possible. And when I say swim the lake, it's the longest possible lake. We would really uh, quite big on that, you know, the longer, even if it's the diagonal, you know, the longest possible distance. Um, and he wanted to set a time for this with, with cycling in between. And he asked me if I wanted to join him. Um, to which I replied, yes, absolutely. You know, yeah, I was in the middle of the desert on an adventure, another adventure. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm keen. Um, and it was when I got back to England, I sent him a, a text message and said, Hey Tom, how, how far is this? And he's like, yes, it's 40 miles. I was like, Oh, I think the longest I'd ever swum at that point was a mile in a pool. So I was like, right, we've got some, got some training to do. So <laughs> yeah, we, um, Tom was, yeah, he's a really great swimmer. So I thought, right, I've really got to knuckle down here. So we, we built up uh, to that. We had to go back in 2019. And um, unfortunately on the very last lake, he, he didn't quite make it. Uh, he got, he got too cold and had to, had to pull out, but I managed to get round and finish the last lake. And um, it was a really nice experience, but it got me thinking that, you know, with a bit more preparation, would it be possible to, you know, set like a really fast time? So that was, that was what I built towards two years later. So this was in 2021. Um, I, trained to, to try and give it a give it a better go and uh, see how fast we could go and and tell us how that went yeah so um in the meet so we set a time or rather i set a time in 2019 of uh, three and a half days it took us we cycled between the lakes um had a bit of a sleep each night and um took three and a half days but then um in 2020 i saw plastered all over the news in the uk that um someone had broken that record uh not not cycling in between but driving and um, I looked into this this guy, George Taplin. He's a fantastic swimmer. He trialed for the Rio Olympics, uh, just narrowly missed out on getting to the Olympics. And uh, he set a time of 59 hours. So I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, 59 hours, you know, that seems pretty quick. But I feel like it's beatable. Like, I feel like I should be able to do that. But for some reason, it wasn't really grabbing me. You know, I wasn't super enthused by it. But then one day I was on a long drive and I, I thought to myself, well, what if instead of trying to get 59 hours to, to set the time, what if we try to go sub 48 hours, you know, and let's just go straight through, you know, let's not sleep. Let's literally go lake to lake to lake until we're done. Yeah. And that made me excited. <laughs> that was, that kind of uh, captured the imagination. I felt right. Yeah, we need to, I need to do this. This sounds fantastic. And I think I've never really been, you know, breaking a, breaking a record is not nice, obviously, but I was never, I think having the motivation is just, you know, trying to break this, seemingly arbitrary figure that someone else managed to do that wasn't really enough of motivation it had to be something that was more intrinsic to me um that you know not defined by someone else so that, i think that's why the 48 hours was was quite exciting so um so yeah i kind of settled down to my computer one night got an excel spreadsheet out trying to work out you know the quickest way between all of the lakes and how long it should take me and was this even possible at the pace that i knew i could swim and um gradually built a team i uh, kind of called up a bunch of mates and this was just coming out of COVID, uh, the main height of the COVID pandemic in the UK. So I called up a, a bunch of mates who were kind of excitable people who bring positive energy and uh, they were all really enthusiastic to get involved. I think having been locked up in their homes for the previous 18 months. So yeah, we got this team together and, and went and gave it a blast and it was, it was fantastic. It all, it went really well. Um, we in the end managed to get around in 41 hours and seven minutes, I think in the end, and um, it was a really great experience. It was fantastic to, you know, to see all my mates. You know, it's vaguely, vaguely sociable when I didn't have my face in a lake. I was able to catch up with my friends a little bit in the car in between the lakes. And um, everyone, it was just a fantastic experience getting everyone together and uh, to do something, to do something fun. Doesn't sound, you don't make it sound hard at all. Was that how difficult was it to, to, to um, do? <laughs> I think I think time is a good uh, healer of painful memories, isn't it? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely tough. I mean, we started at five a.m. Um, and then went right through until ten p.m. the following day. Uh, so there were definitely some hard moments in there. Um, like one one particular example was um, I got to about two a.m. So in the middle of like the night that was in, kind of slap in the middle of the challenge, and by that time I was a few hours ahead of schedule and. Um, I was falling asleep in the car. So my mate Tomo, who was driving me, said, Hey, like, do you want to just take, you know, an hour, just have a bit of a sleep and then um and then we'll crack on and you'll be stronger towards the end because of it and you'll you know, you'll catch up the time. It's like, you know what, I think that's a good idea. So um in the car, just on the side of the lake in the te in the torrential rain, um, put the seat back and slept for an hour. And I woke up probably about, yeah, about 50 minutes later, um, with the most awful nauseating feeling like I was going to be sick from the smell of the wetsuits behind me was just 
oh, it was disgusting. It was like worse than an ocean growing cabin after three weeks when you know, five dudes have been sleeping in there and not washing in between shifts. It was really, really disgusting. And um, that woke me up. And then the next sensation that I felt was both of my wrists were just completely on fire. You know, I'd been rowing for about 17, uh, so swimming for about 17 hours and my wrists had just seized up. I couldn't move my fingers without kind of shards of agony, like firing up my, up my forearms. And, um, that was, that was a low point. Um, but at the same time, that was an opportunity for Tomo to, to really stop up, uh, step up. He was like, right, no problem, Dan. Got the, you got the duct tape out, uh, kind of duct tape my hand, my wrist into it kind of looked like a boxer. I duct tape my wrist into kind of a position. And he said, it doesn't matter that you can't move your fingers anymore. Your hand's in the right position for swimming. Get in the lake. I'll see you at the far end. And kind of kicked me out of the car and drove off uh, into the night, which um, kind of left me with one option, which was to, to swim the lake, I guess. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there was definitely tough moments there, but there were a few really nice moments as well. But uh, thankfully now dominating the the memory of the, wow. uh, the two days. I, man, that is so wild. Were there any particular dangers to look out for obviously hypothermia but you had a wetsuit and you had like a buoy that for for visibility but what mm -hmm. anything to worry about in the lakes at all boats or animals yeah. or anything so hypothermia is a biggie um even with the wetsuit I mean the water temperature was probably about um be about 15 16 degrees celsius which which at first uh, feels fine, but you know how when you get tired and you're sleep deprived, everything's colder, isn't it? So towards the, um, probably from about halfway in, I was shivering before I even got into the lake um, all the way through and then shivering when I got out. So that was, that was a real challenge. But on a few of the more touristy lakes, I mean, there's the longest lake in England, Lake Windermere, which is about 11 miles long, is um, it's got quite a lot of tourist boats on it. So I had a support kayak, uh, which my partner Adelina was, was paddling next to me. And, um, that was really important for visibility. You know, quite often she was having to wave and signal to these big pleasure cruisers to like, Hey, you know, there's someone in the water here. You need to, you need to give us a bit of space. Cause that would, that's obviously a huge danger. Um, so I think the two main things really were, were that it was the, um, the, the, the hypothermia and getting hit by a boat, but thankfully I had an incredible support team around me, which kept me relatively warm, but also safe from boats. Although she did run me over twice with the kayak actually. Um, so that was that was less good. Um, Another danger, kayaks. But wow. yeah, I'd rather get hit by a kayak than a steam a steamboat, I guess. <laughs> where uh, where I'm, I'm I live is is uh, filled with alligators and oh, crocodiles right. for that matter. Here, so you have to you have to watch out yeah. for and snakes <laughs> will be swimming across the lakes. It's it's all kinds of stuff. So you got to. Oh, be I careful. see where you're coming from. Then okay, yeah, UK has nothing like that. I was chatting <laughs> to a mate from Australia actually, and he was he asked me the same thing. He was like, "Oh my god, isn't this crazy dangerous?" I was like, "Well." get a bit cold, you know, could get hit by a boat. And I realized that, yeah, we're a bit soft in England, actually. We don't yeah. have to worry about anything like that. <laughs> There's even fish you got to watch out for that can, that can, uh, that can hurt you. But wow, that is insane. Oh, wow. So 41 <laughs> hours, seven minutes is what you finished in. How, how many, it's 13 publicly accessible lakes in the Lake District. H how many miles was there? How many kilometers was it total? Yeah, so it was a uh, 71K. Uh, of swimming in total, which I think is about 44, 45 miles. Um, so we you, we drove between the lakes, which gave us a slight break, but obviously uh, whizzing between as quickly as possible to try to, um, once the clock's ticking, it's ticking. So um, yeah, not not too much rest in between. So that's, that's an unbelievable amount uh, to me of distance to swim in two days, in less than two days. Um, do, do you feel you have any particular... Uh, unique ability to, sw to swim this long? You said you obviously didn't have experience in it, but do you feel like this is something most people could do if they set their mind to training for it? Yeah, I think, um, so anyone who's watched me swimming, um, who knows a bit about swimming would not say that I'm a swimmer. <laughs> um, I think, um, so my technique, you know, it's, it's obviously okay. Um, like I can, you know, in a pool, I can hit reasonable times, but I definitely wouldn't be, you know, competing in a pool. Um, but I think there must just be something about the biomechanics of my stroke that means that it doesn't break down. You know, it doesn't, I don't get injured shoulders or elbows. Obviously my wrists uh, got pretty sore after a while, but I think it's a bit like, you know, when you watch, um, ultra endurance runners, like I was watching, um, a few videos from Courtney DeWalter recently, the American ultra endurance runner. And when you watch runners like this, you know, if you saw them on a street, 
uh, running down the pavement, you wouldn't necessarily think, you know, that's a world-class athlete. But the thing that makes her good is that she can do that for 200, 300 miles. Um, so I think with the swimming, it's not something that I'm particularly good at. Um, it's just that I can, I don't mean to compare myself to Courtney at all here. She's, uh, she's absolutely fantastic, whereas I'm just mucking around with it a bit. But um, I think just having a technique that's robust really makes the difference. And you see um, quite a few people like that who, you know, discovered running, for example, in their 40s or even 50s, 60s. And they discover that, you know, I can't go fast, but I can I can keep going. And they run marathons and then they do ultra marathons and they build up. So I think it's just um, I was lucky to stumble across something that I seem to have a bit of resilience for. Yeah. Wow. So fascinating. So you got this fastest known time. And from what I understand, fastest known time actually doesn't keep track of anything besides on foot travel. Is that is that right? Because I've, I've talked about trying to get some like water based kayak based yeah. fastest known times. So. Is there somewhere that you're tracking this that's different than fastestknowntime.com? Oh, I see the website. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So the website is only um, is only for on foot um, on foot stuff. I remember listening to one of your podcasts with a lad who uh, he had the the record for the greatest number of FKTs <laughs> through <Yeah>. that website, <laughs> which was which was a great listen. But um, yeah, so with this, it's kind of um, you just try and get it out into the media in some way. Uh, so for example, the BBC uh, ran a few website articles and a few TV interviews about it. Um, so if anyone wants to have a go uh, to break it, they can just Google it and it'll come up. Oh, perfect. Um, so yeah. I think we can just take advantage of, of the media to <laughs> be our record keeper. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, the FKT community will, will open up to things like this because not everyone wants to you know, run. <laughs> up, up mm. a mountain faster. <laughs> yeah. or no one, not everyone has the ability to do it faster than anybody. That's for sure. Um, and then that, that being me, I don't have, I don't have the ability to break any of those, <laughs> but, um, or the desire really, but water, you know, maybe that's a possibility. Um, well, what are you, so, so let's, let's wrap this up and, and just finish with what, what's kind of on the horizon for you. Obviously, uh, you're, you're working, uh, full time, you're, you're, teaching, you're studying, you're, you're researching, uh, what are you doing for work and what are you doing for adventures? What do you see on the horizon? Yeah. So I'm actually part of, um, another ocean rowing team for this summer. Um, so it's a Romanian team who are, who I've got a crew together, um, to try to break the current record for the length of the Black Sea. Uh, so Black Sea is somewhere that I didn't know anywhere about anything about at all. I had to look it up on the map, which was why I wanted to do it. Cause it was just a way to like all of my other sports, you know, it's just a way to use sport to explore the world. Um, so I thought, yeah, Black Sea, cool. That sounds amazing. So it's, um, the plan is to go this summer, uh, and it's from Romania on the West coast, right across to Georgia on the East coast. Uh, it's about a thousand, 400 kilometers, I think. So nothing as big as, you know, the Atlantic or as dangerous as the Arctic, but a really nice, um, a nice, fun, challenging expedition. But obviously that's all been put massively into perspective by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which obviously, is, as we're recording now, is on day 14, I think. So the Crimea uh, and Ukraine sits on the north shore of this lake, and there's a whole load, a whole bunch of um, Russian warships uh, currently in the Black Sea. Um, so that's massively put this into perspective, and is obviously it's nowhere near approaching significance compared to everything that's going on that the Ukrainians are suffering from at the moment. So we'll have to see. Uh, I mean, that was that was the plan that we made before things started escalating. So that may or may not happen. Uh, but if, if not, then um, I'm sure I'm sure something else will prop up soon. Yeah, that's you, you would be very close to some very contentious areas if you were to leave. Exactly. Anytime yeah. soon. Um, please tell me that the name of the Romanian team is the Romaniacs because <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> you know what? We were in um, we were in Bucharest back in January having a team meeting and kind of putting the final basically making the final commitment to each other that we would we would all do it and we were sitting around trying to come up with a a name for the crew and that name got suggested the <laughs> someone row came maniacs up, someone came up with that name uh and then you know what we googled it and it had been taken really oh my gosh <laughs> someone did something a few years ago and called themselves the romaniacs so yeah that's that's gone unfortunately oh, but shoot well, well I, I just think, think it's else, literally you know. row and mania there, there's something there there's definitely something there, <laughs> there but, uh, <laughs> but yeah this is all obviously dependent on what, what's going on in ukraine hopefully yeah. you know the world can can come back to peace so that we can uh 
all keep getting along and exploring the world openly. Well, uh, gosh, that's about all I wanted to ask, Danny. Was there anything else you wanted to share? Anything that uh, folks can find you or anything you you would like to plug? Yeah, so nothing nothing to plug as such. Uh, If anyone's vaguely interested in following a few adventures, I've got an Instagram page at the world be a playground. Uh, So the world be a playground. Uh, it's an Instagram page, no website, no books, nothing like that. But yeah, it was lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for the invitation to to talk. I've obviously listened to the show for a wee while, so nice to say hello. That's awesome. I, I forget people listen to the show. Um, <laughs> I just think I I put I push it out to see, you know, push it out there and see if it goes anywhere. But yeah, this is this has been awesome. Great to great, always great to talk to a listener, and especially one doing something so interesting, something so different, and living a really, really interesting life. I love this. <laughs> no, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I think you've uh, gotten up quite early today to accommodate the, the time zone difference there. So thank you. <laughs> oh, no, that. no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not a problem at all. It's uh, I talked to people all around the world for a few years. So you used to all kinds of stuff, all kinds of <laughs> but Yeah, thank you so much, Danny. Have a great yeah, day. Thanks. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk soon. Cheers, buddy. You too. Keep up the good work. Catch right. you soon. You as well. Cheers. All right, bye. bye. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.